Yes, a very good morning to you all. Today brings us to the end of this current series, the Exodus Express. But I hope we're going to be able to pick it up um, and do stage two of the journey before too long. I had to go down to London by train last week, and as old codgers like me always do, I winced at certain developments in the English language, as evidenced in the public announcements uh, on the train. You might have noticed some of the things I'm about to say. What used to be a train is now a service. So I went, I didn't go by train, I went by service, apparently. And it no longer merely arrives at a station, it arrives into a station. And in fact, it's not even just a station, it's a station stop. Have you noticed this? And it's generously designated, whether you want to get off or not, the next station is your next station stop. Well, that, I suppose, is progress in the language. So here goes with my attempt at an up-to-date train announcement on the Exodus Express. This is the Exodus Express service. This service will shortly be arriving into Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, your next station stop. Change here for a better understanding of God's word and life in his kingdom. change here. Perhaps that should be the title of this talk. But I've actually called it Covenant Life. This morning we're going to read about a pivotal moment in God's relationship with his people. Because at Mount Sinai, this ragtag tribe, related only by ancestry and a common desire to survive in the desert, will become a nation united under God. Related not only by blood and circumstance, but also by choice through a new covenant, the beginnings, actually, of a legal system. This event that takes place 50, years, sorry, 50 days after Passover is the origin of the Jewish feast of Shavuot, or Pentecost. This festival celebrates the one-off historic event when Moses received the law from God, but also the annual event of the harvest, the Feast of the first fruits. So in the Jewish mind, the foundation of the nation through God's covenant is forever linked with fruitfulness and the celebration of God's provision for us. In this series, we've mentioned often the benefits of developing what we call an exodus mindset as we try to understand the scriptures. And its application to Pentecost is no exception to this. Because when the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, there can have been no doubt whatever in those early recipients of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit about the significance of the day. This new outpouring of heaven upon the earth could only be about the establishment of themselves as God's people. As we're about to read, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and about a communal experience of fruitfulness with a promise of much more to come. Because that's what First Fruits is about. So, to the text. We're going to read together Exodus 19 and a good part of 20. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. 
They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while, Israel, uh, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you, Moses, shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the, in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all round, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, don't go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, on them, uh, to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down. And bring, come bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the earth, heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of your Lord God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the traveler who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled when they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Well, the story we've read so far in Exodus has seen what was just an insignificant clan grow despite their slavery into a mighty tribe in Egypt. We've watched uh, as the God of their ancestors finally broke into their history and revealed himself first to Moses... And then you remember through the plagues to Pharaoh, the one who asked, who's this Lord that I should obey him? Well, he got his answer. He didn't like it very much. He had to release Israel. Then in that desert wanderings, we saw God reveal himself to Israel as well, as provider, protector, as guide. And as he revealed himself to them, they also found out more about who they were. Like us, they experience the way that more of God in our lives actually brings not more restriction and restraint, but more freedom and flourishing. And like us, they found that even when they were faithless, God remains faithful to them. Like us, they had to get used to an entirely new kind of life, a much more challenging one than the one they knew before, but also a far more rewarding one. Now at Sinai, they're given an opportunity to make this new relationship with God permanent, to make it official, in a covenant agreement of exactly the same kind that people used to enter into in those days with a king or an overlord. As several of the previous speakers have, have pointed out in this series, their salvation is experienced and worked out collectively, not as individuals. And this new covenant at Sinai, likewise, is one they have to make and keep as a people. So this is not an individually tailored travel plan. This is a group booking. And as we learn an Exodus mindset, we'll begin to see that the same must be true of our own salvation and of our own life's walk. For today's purposes, I want to break this passage down into four journeys up the mountain. Incredible, really, isn't it? 
The first time Moses goes up as a mediator, God offers to Israel the covenant. The second time, as Israel accepts the offer, God instructs them on how they are to receive it. Only after Moses' third ascent to the top of the mountain does God actually give the covenant. And as he goes up for the fourth time to ratify the treaty, as it were, we witness Israel's response to the covenant. So first thing is the, is the offer of the covenant. And if you've been with us from the beginning of this series, you'll remember in chapter 3, God's promise at the burning bush encounter that he was going to bring Israel back to that very spot and they would serve him there. So it must have been really exciting for Moses after all this time to be back there with the entire people of God at his back, as it were. Perhaps he was looking out for a burning bush. Is it still there? Am I still going to find God the same way that I found him before? But God didn't speak to him out of a bush. He spoke out of the very mountain that Moses was standing on. And it seems to me there's two very important things um, to point out about this encounter. Firstly, that Moses had to make a great effort to come into God's presence. And second, that God's presence didn't look the same this time round as it had before. Back in chapter 3, Moses had just been passing through, he'd just been passing by, when God kind of burst on his consciousness in this extraordinary event uh, that he couldn't really miss, the burning bush. It was obvious. But now that he has so much more experience of God and his ways, this 80-year-old man has to climb a mountain to meet with God. And there's no burning bush to see, just a voice. I think we need to not expect our communication with God to get easier as we grow in the faith. Like a parent teaching a child to walk, God sometimes seems to have to take a step back each time we come to him. The good news is that every time he does, we get a little bit better at reaching him. We're constantly making more and better connections with God, as we say in this church. And as we said before, in verses 3 to 6, the covenant which God offers is not just to the faithful, God-seeking individual, Moses, as he stands before God. It is to this raggle-taggle community of unbelieving believers. There's hope for us in that. Verse 3 anticipates the change that is going to come about through this covenant. The house of Jacob is to become the people of Israel. Family becomes nation. By agreeing with God together, obeying him together, living together under his protection, this family becomes a nation, not just any nation either, but one that's going to be God's representatives throughout his earth. A kingdom of priests, verse 6, among all the nations that God already owns and is trying to reach out to, verse 5. Now they've seen for themselves what God is able to do to their enemies, And in verse 4, God offers this as the primary reason why they would want to serve him in covenant relationship. Now here again, it seems to me the Exodus mindset needs to inform our Christianity. Our relationship with God is not something we can dip in and out of as we feel like it. It is a permanent, binding, covenant relationship. Something that both God and we have put our signatures to and bound ourselves to entirely for our benefit, not his. 
God's promise is to save and protect and provide and lead and comfort and heal and, 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 and. As they say in Penang, plus, plus. Ours is simply a twofold obedience of verse 5. to Obedience to his voice and obedience to his covenant. I'm not sure that I've ever actually noticed before this double nature of our obedience expressed in that verse. But it is vitally important. The point is that one or other is not good enough because we are all imperfect receptors and we are all imperfect transmitters of God's voice and God's word, his word and his spirit. This is where each confirms the other in a community setting that we can truly have confidence in the guidance we received. God is not looking for slavish obedience to whatever imperfect receptors and transmitters like myself have said the Bible teaches. Nor has he left us to hear his own voice, to hear his voice with with no assistance from elsewhere. The passage shows that he guides us through word, spirit and community. Part two, preparation for the covenant. When he, once Moses has secured the agreement of the people, he then has to go back up the mountain again to f- talk to God. And for me, this story is a vivid representation of our life as that kingdom of priests, representing God to mankind and mankind to God. Sometimes we have to make a repeated and laborious spiritual journey, as it were, up and down the mountain, up to heaven and back, several times a day. Say we meet God in our morning quiet time and then we go to work. (laughs) Well, we quickly encounter people who haven't been up the mountain, haven't heard what God was saying there. They're in a completely different place. We have to meet them where they are. Then as we approach God again, perhaps after a difficult meeting or maybe in our lunch hour, we have to climb the mental mountain again to get our thoughts back in tune with God's way of thinking. And the mistake would be either to abdicate our priesthood and stay up on the unapproachable mountaintop, where nobody else can understand a word we're saying or experience what we're experiencing, or to abdicate our priesthood the other way around and stay all day long down in the valley and never get back up the mountain again. Only by painful practice can we gain the spiritual mountain fitness necessary to make that ascent and descent several times in the course of a day. Remember as a child walking in the Lake District um, and seeing this chap running down in the valley. And I thought, well, he's not going to get far because he was just going up and down the small hills. And, um, and we thought, well, he's going to exhaust himself. He'll be completely tuckered out. What an idiot running. I'd not heard of fell runners. Huh. Well, 20 minutes later, the guy was overtaking us and on his way up there. And by the time we got to the top of the hill, he was two peaks away, still running. <laughs> okay. I think that's what we have to become in spiritual terms. Up the mountain, down the mountain, it's nothing to us. We'll run it, never mind walking. Notice too in verse 9, God announces he's going to appear not in brilliant light and clarity. He's going to appear in a thick cloud that completely obscures what he looks like. We all want the clarity and the brightness. But actually, we all have to stumble through what the divines of old called the cloud of unknowing. 
As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we see through a glass darkly. Then when we die, we'll see face to face. And in the light, or should I say in the darkness, the obfuscation of Moses' experience, I think we should be profoundly um, sceptical about people who seem to have a wonderful hotline to God. Oh, God said this, God said that, God said the other thing. But as the people watch Moses approaching this impenetrable cloud, verse 9, they will all at least hear God's voice for themselves. And that, God says, is going to enable them to trust their leader. And for us too, spiritual leadership remains um, a necessity in life. But an Exodus mindset shows us that all those who follow can hear for themselves what God is saying to the leader. And they probably should. But as this passage tells us, an element of personal cleansing is required so that that can take place. This whole idea of consecration is perfectly familiar to the Jew and to the Roman Catholic. This consecration. But it seems rather foreign, or it's become foreign to we who are evangelicals. Addicted as we have perhaps become to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. But consecration is not just an Old Testament concept. Jesus teaches, Matthew 5.23, that before we take our offering to God, we need to make sure we put things right with anyone who's got something against us. Paul teaches, 1 Corinthians 11.28, that before we take communion, we should examine ourselves carefully and see that we're really right with God and right with each other. Yes, we have salvation in Christ from all our sins, past, present, and future. But as we read in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we are delusional. Only if we confess our sins does God forgive us and cleanse us. So our approach to God should be bold indeed. Hebrews 4.16. As long as we recognize that our bold approach is to his throne of grace. The place where he is... Lord of our sin, and chooses to forgive us. That's what we approach boldly, the throne of grace. As Indiana Jones teaches us, the penitent man shall pass. An Exodus mindset remembers how Israel was forbidden even to touch the foot of the mountain on pain of death. And that leaves no room for any cavalier attitude to sin. Open parenthesis. I cannot pass by verse 15 without commenting on the reason that Moses makes such a big deal of sexual abstinence as part of of consecration. Now, Some commentaries will refer you to 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul is talking about uh, sexual abstinence for couples so they can devote themselves to prayer. And maybe that's a point, but I'm not convinced. It seems far more likely to me that the, the simplest explanation is the best. In all likelihood... There were some very free and easy sexual morals that had been picked up in Egypt, even by the Israelites, never mind the mixed multitude that was following with them. So by far the simplest thing was not to say, uh, well, you can have sex if you're this and you can't have sex if you're that. Yeah, but I don't know about marriage, you know. Well, let's not do that. Let's just have a, uh, no pun intended, blanket ban uh, for, for, a, for a couple of days. Then everyone knows where they stand. And... It's not only simple, but it treats everyone as equals. It's, uh, 
It's like the vineyard principle of come as you are, but don't stay as you are. It meets people actually where they are. Then, close parenthesis. Then on the third day, verses 16 to 19, God duly appears on the mountain in signs and wonders so awesome. Let's reclaim the word awesome if we can. That the people are actually terrified. And apparently without going up the mountain, uh, Moses speaks to God and God answers him, verse 19, in thunder. Does that remind anyone of, uh, of anything that happened in Jesus' life? Do you know where it is? John's Gospel? Mm-hmm. Chapter 12, 20, 29. Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there said, oh, it's thundering. It was coming on to rain. Get your brollies up. You know. But actually, this is the voice of God. God speaking in thunder. And those who had an exodus mindset, who were looking on, thought, oh, yeah, this is like Mount Sinai. This is, I know what's happening here. Three, the giving of the covenant. We are getting quicker as we go on, okay? In verse 20, Moses is off up the mountain again, a climb of over 7,000 feet. That's fun for an 80-year-old, isn't it? And as soon as he gets to the top, God tells him, go down again and tell the people to stay away. Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, Moses is a little bit unimpressed. He's, uh, and he said, look, look, I have set the boundaries around. I've told them clearly not to come. And you know, no one's going to go against that. You know, everyone's scared. Um, but God insists. And in verse 25, Moses just has no choice. He has to go back down again. Now, we could try and second guess God's purpose in dragging Moses right up the hill, like the grand old Duke of York, only to march him down again. But we're not told... So it's probably best that we don't try and guess. We cannot expect to understand God fully. Because as Isaiah 55 reminds us, the ways of God are as much higher than ours as the heaven is above the earth. I'm trying to find that point in the atmosphere where heaven starts. And you'll see it's quite difficult. The point is, we cannot always understand, but we can always obey. And if we make our obedience conditional on understanding, we will never do anything really remarkable for God. In fact, I doubt we'll ever do anything at all. So Moses just obeys and bimbles back down the hill again. And it seems, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, that God starts speaking from the second he finishes re-instructing the people. But don't touch the mountain. And the Ten Commandments which follow stand to this day, not only as God's basic rule of life for the Jew and Christian alike, but also as a vivid picture of the kind of God he is and the kind of people he calls us to be. Let's run through them very, very quickly and do them no justice at all. This is the Exodus Express, right? We're just looking out of the window and seeing these things as we pass. Commandment number one, verses one and two, speaks of a God who is not only saviour, Fully, who is sorry, who is our only saviour, fully entitled to all of our worship. And when he says you'll have no other gods before me, he's not saying uh, you can have other gods, but make sure I'm the top one. He's saying don't have any other gods in my sight. And we might think that our our little private idolatries are, are hidden from his sight, that he doesn't know uh, that I covered a Bentley uh, or what have you. But um, 
But he sees it all. There's absolutely no point trying to hide it. We should have no other gods before him. This speaks of a people who will learn to be 100% faithful to him. Commandment 2, verses 4 to 6, is, I think, quite distinct from number 1. It warns us against trying to depict God in some limited physical form, which we can locate in time and space. He's not to be limited in any such way. We are to be a people of imagination, content to meet an intangible God on his own terms, rather than trying to squeeze him into a box of our own making, or to create God in our own image. Commandment 3, I suggest, verse 7, goes far beyond uh, a ban on blasphemy and false swearing in God's name. I think we should also be aware of uh, using phrases like, in Jesus' name, as if it were a magical formula just tagged on to the end of every prayer. Are we really praying in his name? Are we really acting as ambassadors, fully representative of Christ, when we use those, um, those words? And calling ourselves Christians, we're taking the name of Christ upon ourselves. Can we do that with integrity? Are we actually living as ambassadors for Christ? God's name should not be used or invoked lightly in speech or in prayer. And we should learn to be a people of the name in reality, not in name only. Commandment 4, verses 8 to 11, speak of a, a, a perfect yet undemanding God who only asks of us one day per week, even though he owns us lock, stock and barrel. A God who delights to meet with us also in a, constantly in the ordinary days and ways of a working week, in leisure days with family and friends. We are to be a people who keep one day a week work free in deference to our family likeness to God, who chose to rest after creation was complete, even though unlike us, he didn't need to. We are to be a people who recognize both our need for rest and our God's ability to provide for us, even when it seems like we can't afford a day off. We are done with slavery. Commandment 5, verse 12, speaks of a God who is himself a father, the father of all creation, and who sees in our human family relationships something reflective of our relationship with him, something to be respected. We have to be a grateful and respectful people. Commandment 6, verse 13, speaks of a God who values the life principle. We've seen in the previous chapter that he sanctions the death penalty on certain restricted circumstances, but we should never run away with the idea that we can prescribe death as a punishment or even take upon ourselves too quickly the right to end life on mercy grounds. Of course, mercy killing is a hugely complex issue, which luckily for me we don't have time to get into today. But this verse raises what lawyers would call a rebuttable presumption against judicial or mercy killing. We should be a people who respect human life as sacred, belonging to God. And we would overrule the life principle only after very careful and prayerful consideration. Commandment 7 verse 14 speaks of a God who values our vows and expects us to honour them. If we're to be as people, we never make such vows lightly and we break them at our peril. Commandment 8, verse 15, reveals a God who values property rights even whilst caring passionately for the poor and dispossessed. We need to be a generous people, of course, and we pray uh, and work for social justice. But Karl Marx was wrong 
property is not theft. God says so. So we need to be a people who respect the stationary cupboard at work rather than half-inching the occasional pencil. Respect the expenses claim form, the tax return, the sick note, etc. And deal with honesty and integrity with all those things. Commandment 9 verse 16 reveals a God who values the spoken word. He whose own son is known as the word of God and the way, the truth and the life values truth more highly than we can possibly imagine. We're to be a people of the truth, people whose word is trusted absolutely because of who we are in our Lord. And commandment 10, verse 17, speaks of a God who knows better than we do what is good for us and is perfectly committed to providing it. We therefore should be a people who, like Paul in Philippians 4.12, have learned to be content in plenty and in hardship. Those who can look at the good things that somebody else has and be thankful on their behalf without ever thinking, poor old me. And then lastly, number four, Israel's response to the covenant in verses 18 to 21. The people are afraid and with good reason. And that distances them from God. And I think this response is probably both right and wrong at the same time in different ways. In verse 20, Moses says they shouldn't be afraid. God was only revealing his, his scary side so they would know who's who and what's what. Like the Narnia books keep telling us about Aslan. He's not a tame lion. Proverbs 1 and other passages in the Old Testament teach us that there is a godly fear which is the beginning of wisdom. As verse 20 says, it will prevent us from sinning. But actually, don't you think it was a bit sad for God as he remembered his friendship with Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, who longed to restore that relationship, that his own chosen people, even at this moment of covenant, now hide away from him like Adam did after the fall. Surely, part of the message we read today must be that there remains a place of safety under the shadow of the wing of the one, chapter 19, verse 4, who bore us up on those wings like wings of an eagle. Surely there remains a correct attitude of boldness with which we can approach the throne of grace. And we're going to do that in just a second as we pray. But for now, that's it. The Exodus Express has arrived at or into Sinai. Change here for a better understanding of God's word and a closer walk in his ways. Why don't you stand and I'll pray. Lord, as we remember, not only that old covenant made of the first Pentecost, but the new covenant which Jesus makes with us, the covenant in his blood. We reaffirm our status as covenant people of yours, as sometimes unbelieving believers, but ones who are intensely grateful for dwelling under the shadow of your wing. And we come to you this morning just as we are. 
and say we commit ourselves to being your covenant people. Maybe some of us have never done that before and this is the first time. But we all want to come under your covenant together, welcome you as our Lord and accept our place as your people. Those of us who are leaving and those of us who are staying, those of us who are visiting and those of us who are are permanent members here, our covenant is with you. So come now, Lord Holy Spirit, and touch your people with your, with your healing, with your grace, with your forgiveness, with your wisdom, and make yourself known here today.